Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. This episode is brought to you by Riverside.fm, and quite literally because it's what I use to record both my podcasts, Everything is Marketing, and Default Alive. But I was using Riverside long before they became a sponsor. I used to use Zoom until someone interviewed me using Riverside, and I just knew that I had to make the switch. Personally, I love it because they take local recordings on each side, which gives you a reliable connection, and the highest quality audio and video tracks. Separate HD recordings, an iOS app, automatic transcriptions, it's made specifically for podcasters. People like Guy Raz from How I Built This, Cortland Allen from Indie Hackers, and even Hillary Clinton uses it, if you can believe it. Check them out and all the other features they have at riverside.fm. One more time, that's riverside.fm. On the show today is Connor Lewis. Connor's the founder of Fort, which creates magnetic pillow forts for kids. I wanted to bring him on because Connor launched one of the most successful Kickstarter campaigns out there. Not only was the campaign a massive success, but it was also a groundbreaking case study on community-driven product development. Connor's also been sharing everything he's learned about getting Fort off the ground on Twitter as well. So you'll hear about how he built an audience before Kickstarter, how he leveraged niche online communities during the pandemic, and what factors made the campaign so, so successful. To start out, I'd love to know, did you ever think that you'd be selling magnetic pillows for a living? Did I ever think I'd be selling magnetic pills for a living? <laughs> so the answer is no, not specifically magnetic pillows. I did think I would probably create my own business, and I had a pretty good feeling that it would be an odd business. I, I've always, yeah, I've I've always been kind of, I've always kind of gone my own way, been really creative. I was really bad at school and got an art degree, and just kind of pursued individuality. Not so much so that you know I I have like a tattoo on my face and need to stand out that much. Not that that's bad. I just you know I'm 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 a pretty I'm a fairly normal guy inside of that bound. But I always loved entrepreneurship, doing my own thing, and I wanted to create something myself. Like I felt that there was a lot of potential in, in what I kept coming up with. I just could never find anything that I thought had traction. Mm. And so I always believed that I would do something, especially online, maybe in kind of startup entrepreneurship. So it just kind of because this is not my craziest idea like this happened to be kind of a crazy <laughs> idea that worked like this is on the I've got a lot side. of yeah that, I mean absolutely on the conservative side the amount of things that I have tried and failed at are I mean it's endless and so I knew it would be odd and I knew that and then once kind of I pulled this off I feel like I could basically do anything like I, there's there's no there's within the bounds of maybe e-commerce like or or online content or something I feel like there's so much potential within that that now I've understood. So yeah, I do. I I didn't think it would be magnetic pillow forts, but I'm not shocked that it's something that kind of odd and niche or interesting. Well, I love that. Yeah, I mean that's great. Like self awareness, just to know that and uh, to not be surprised by it. Some people would maybe feel like you know surprised or awkward about it or or, or weird in some way, but I absolutely love it. I mean that's why you caught my attention in the first place and why I decided to reach out was because it was you know one of the most interesting product ideas, but also just the execution on the marketing and the fundraising side was phenomenal. And I want to get to that, but I actually am curious. I know that you actually have a marketing background. So could you walk me through kind of like a, a brief timeline of how you got to where you are today and a little bit of your background? Yeah. 
I do have a marketing background. I would say my marketing background is mostly on the creative side. So I, I basically, I, I was really into advertising, newspaper, journalism, things like that. And, you know, in college, there's a big crossover between kind of the ad marketing side and then kind of like the journalism side. So I went to this really great school for photojournalism and like promptly failed out. <laughs> Just was, was a good photographer, was a terrible student. And so I was lucky to have some exposure to the ad and marketing stuff. And I moved over to the art school because that was basically the only place I could go after I was on probation and all these things. Like that was the only place that I think I could have passed my degree. And in doing the ad or in working in the art school, you know, I studied graphic design and graphic design has a huge crossover with advertising and marketing. And so I got to take a lot of those classes. And so combining kind of this like photojournalism background with video and photography and then taking this art creative background, it, it made a lot of sense. Right when I graduated college, I got a job right at a, you know, like an advertising firm classic, like really boring stuff. We did, we, I don't even know if you know what these are, but annual reports, they're like what you do for the SEC for, for Fortune 500 companies. I, yeah. I'm so out of my depth with like this that I don't even know what they are, but I designed them. Like they're, they're, they're basically long. There's basically like 10 pages at the front that talk about how great this company that's like ruining the earth is. And then like the rest <laughs> of the thing is like spreadsheets. So my wife's a CPA. I'm sure she knows more about this than I do, but I designed those and, and, and I found myself like kind of learning marketing. And as we continue to dip into social and learning more about, more about video and photo creation, content creation and online advertising. And so I kind of got my feet wet at this like small agency working for these large corporations and it really teed me up to kind of understand and I mean this is also when Facebook and Instagram are exploding you know we're talking like 2012 to 2015 you know right when Facebook ads pop off so I'm just tracking all of this and I leave that job that advertising job and I go work for a family office which family offices are basically like you know, someone who has a high net worth, they create their own office around them. And what they do is they basically use that family office to invest. It's usually run by an accountant and a lawyer and somebody. And I got hired at this family office because he was really interested in, in building companies and uh, buying real estate. And he wanted me to be on like a team of young creatives. And so I came in and basically got to learn a bunch of marketing and business stuff almost like on somebody else's dime. So I watched him start a bunch of businesses. I watched him work with a bunch of entrepreneurs, a bunch of real estate deals. I saw a lot of money changing hands. I saw a lot of like executive operation. You know, I sat in the room. I mean, at certain times I was literally taking notes. It was not exciting, but I got to shoot videos. I got to do marketing. I got to learn about Facebook ads. I got to learn about brand building. I got to learn about entrepreneurship from like all the way from like, you know, companies doing less than $100,000 in revenue to, to millions and millions and millions of dollars. So, you know, I did that for five years. And that's like what took me to the point where I was finally ready to start my own thing. Well, I mean, part of that was I lost my job. So like, there's kind of like a, an interjection in there. Like I got fired amicably, but I, I, I got fired. And that's basically where Fort came from. Is it in the midst of COVID, right? If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. So literally yeah, like tough. I, yeah, I mean, it was, so my, I had a, a year and a half year old uh, daughter and then my wife was pregnant and I was working at this family office and 
you know, COVID happens and I'm a young like marketing guy on the team and it's really, I'm a, I'm a pretty easy layoff. Like it's not a big deal. You know, I'm not like making a ton of money and, and it's just like, like, Hey, let's save some money and totally get it. It wasn't, I mean, it was, I mean, I'm not gonna lie. It was horrible, but it wasn't the end of the world. And I had a little bit of time to kind of reflect and be like, what do I want to do with my life? Because right when I got fired, my confidence was shaken. I had no idea that I could really do anything myself. I had always tried to make things myself. I had taken on some really crazy projects working at this family office. And that really taught me how to grow. But my, I was just like, so unsure of everything. And so when I got fired, it was, it took me about the first thing I said when I got fired is I'm not ready to start my own company. I need a job. Like I need a st- some stability. We're having another baby. Like I just, I can't do it. And it took me about a month or two of being like a stay at home dad, basically to like a one and a half year old to be like, okay, I need to do something, <laughs> but I can never go back into an office. Mm-hmm. Like it's, that would be soul crushing for me. I can't work for anybody else. And the thought of it was giving me panic attacks and, and, and a ton of anxiety. And I stumbled on this like magnetic pillow fort idea. I was super familiar with Shopify. I knew about Facebook ads. You know, I was obsessed with podcasts. You know, it, it took me, you know, within like three weeks, I had convinced my wife, like after listening to hours and hours of podcasts, hey, I think, I, I think it was the Tim Ferriss show actually that, that started it. I like heard somebody about their story about starting a Shopify store. And uh, it's actually Alan L- Walton from Spy Guy who like is oh, on Twitter no and I, I, I follow now, you know, and I've talked to him before and I heard his story, you know, a guy the same age as me and it was on Tim Ferriss' show, this huge podcast I listened to. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's a roadmap to build an online business. And when I heard Alan's story and I've, I've since gotten to tell him this, uh, it, it showed me like I could start a million dollar business. You know, I could start a business that generates a million dollars in revenue basically by myself online. Like that's, there's a, there's, I have the skills to do that. Not only do I understand design, I understand video, I understand, you know, some paid media, I understand kind of SEO generalizations, I understand content creation, like, like I, 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 all I have to do is figure out how to make a product and, and, and find the audience. And so that was like, that was the total like genesis of that. That's so worthy you mentioned Alan because he's actually coming up on the podcast. I'm scheduled to record with him and, and I knew his sort of, you know, Tim Ferriss show case study and, and heard, heard it before and seen him around. And since then I've, you know, become an acquaintance and we've DM'd on Twitter a, a few times. But for some reason, when you said, you know, you heard someone's story, I just knew that it was Alan's for whatever reason. Yeah. And uh, make sure to tell him that. I definitely, I will. I, I've told him that before. He was like, man, it's been a while since anyone said that. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's worth listening to if you haven't heard it. Yeah. So, so what about the magnetic pillow fort idea really stood out to you and made you feel like this, this idea of all the other crazy ideas that I have is the thing that has the most legs and that we're going to pursue and turn into, you know, what would become a multimillion dollar Kickstarter campaign? You know, it was really easy. So, so I'm not, I didn't start out passionate about kids' toys. I started more passionate about entrepreneurship and starting a company. But, you know, learning what I had learned at these at these places I've worked, I understood how to find... I've always uh, 
learned and I've always, I've always kind of find my found myself stumbling into things that that kind of are backwardsly successful. So I kind of have been able to recognize just like when tides are shifting. I've just been kind of mm-hmm. lucky that way. And I was paying attention online. You know, I saw COVID. I saw what it was like to be a parent at home with a kid trapped inside, <clears throat> literally living that life. And I also saw the explosion of like at-home kids' toys, at-home kids' couch play couches. You know, it, it basically started with this couch called the Nugget, which is this kids' play couch that, mm. that exploded, went viral online. I saw the explosion of like wooden toys and, and multifunctional functional furniture. And it was really easy to imagine that there could be a world where you know, I could make something that was adjacent to these kind of different categories, you know, the the idea of a piece of multifunctional furniture that also is kind of a toy. And my wife, you know, I don't, I wish I could remember the exact second it happened. And I have a vision in my mind, but I don't remember what day it was. But like, my wife, my pregnant wife was building a pillow fort with my daughter with like, blankets and things classic, you know, back of the chair blanket draping off to another chair that are kind of like angled at a corner. And I was like, there's got to be a better way to do this. Because, you know, I'm like the kind of person that, that like, I'll see, like, a s- bricks that need to be moved. Like, if I was a kid, like, 10 years old, I'd see my dad would be like, can you move those pile of bricks over there? I would take a skateboard and a rope and, like, tie the rope to the skateboard and drag it. Yeah. And, so, and he's like, why don't you just pick those up and move them, you know? And I'm the skateboard rope kid. Like, that's how I think. And so I'm like, oh, we need magnets or Velcro. Like that was my first thought. Not just like, oh, we just get, get, another, get a lighter sheet from upstairs. It'll work better. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that magnet pillow fort idea kind of struck me as something interesting. I jotted it down. And, you know, within like a few weeks, I, I just was convinced that there was something here. I had gone on Facebook groups basically, and I had seen how many people were were just raving about products like the Nugget Couch. We're raving about all these kind of toys that had multifunctional purposes. And I was like, I really think this is going to tap into an interesting customer market because these mostly mothers were like ravenous for these products. Not only were they stuck at home, but like there was almost this kind of like Supreme Air Jordan thing happening where they were kind of limited. And I was like, this is like the perfect time to create something in that category. And so basically after kind of seeing the online hype and Facebook groups, I I just kind of jumped on it. Wow. So what does, what does step one look like for something like this? You know, I assume that there's some sort of like prototyping, but like, I'm just curious, like what, what are the steps you have to take before uh, you then go and like launch the Kickstarter where then it's kind of just like, you know, you're a horse at the races. Like it's just like from there on out, you, you it's go, go, go. It's fundraising time. It's marketing time. But like, what are the steps that lead up to, right before when you can launch a Kickstarter campaign? Yeah, so I mean, uh, the first one was research. You know, I'm a really good Googler as a millennial. Like, you know, <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's like, it's, it's one of my like best gifts is I'm, I'm quick to learn and I'm quick to figure things out. So, I mean, just ravenous, re- ravenous looking at research, pod- every podcast I could find on e-commerce. And then I kind of went straight to what I know, which is like I knew how to draw. I went to art school, right? So I literally, like I literally pulled, just pulled this right now out of my, but like I started sketching. Oh, like these it. are the actual ones. You can see the date 2020-07-13. So that was literally, oh, it was yesterday. No, this is the day, 2020-07-14. It's July no 14th right now. That's crazy. Um, 
and uh, that was like one of my first sketches that was one of my first sketches for the and i just i just started drawing it out and i was like okay how do you make a product and i i i went online and i figured out like okay so i need someone i need a designer to knows how to use 3d and do that and I need to source a factory, which is like the hardest part. And I know I need a brand. You know, the, the easiest things for me were like, okay, let's design a brand. Let's incorporate, you know, let's make an LLC. There's some business stuff to set up. But, you know, the first step really was like, let's design this product. Let's figure out the kind of general marketing angle that we want to go. And let's figure out how we validate this. Like, is anyone going to buy this? Because this is going to be a large product that's really expensive. And I want to make sure that I don't waste a ton of time because there was a clock running on this, right? My, at this point, like my wife was like about to get, you know, it was July and August of, of last of 2020. And, you know, I, we were going to run out of money for me to stay home. Like she was working, but she was about to be off for the baby. And so I had to be like, is this going to be something that's going to generate some income for me? And how long do I have? And so I, ju I jumped right on, you know, like sourcing online on Alibaba and Made in China, those types of websites. And, you know, up literally used Upwork and Fiverr to, to help generate product design and just kind of slowly brought that vision to life. Wow. Yeah. And then um, are, are you doing any sort of like research in the, in the sense of like, testing with real life people in that kind of like prototyping stage or are you mostly going off of you know like your own experience being a parent with kids and sort of like what you think makes sense you know and like trying to figure out like what what, what would you know make sense for people that you think that they would want you know are you, are you actually showing it to people or is it still kind of like too early for that and you're mostly keeping it to yourself yeah, so, so I did do some, with some of our early 3D renders of the product, I did show to some random parrots online to get some feedback. People are usually very excited about it. However, I, I learned pretty quickly that the, like, it almost takes a, a next level of imagination to be able to imagine what it looks like in reality. So, so what I found was more helpful was to go into Facebook groups, like get an invite into Facebook groups that had similar, that were focused on similar products and really like literally just read what people were talking about like hmm. oh i wish this was water oh i wish this stood up better i wish it was stiffer oh i wish i could do this with it and i wish i could store it this way and so kind of all those comments kind of made their way into my designs and i would take that to the to my design my industrial designer and you know we would incorporate that into the design so it was really like facebook groups that kind of brought it to life initially Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I mean, I'm a huge proponent of customer research and user research and really building kind of like that feedback loop that allows you to, to, to build something alongside your customer base. And that way, it's not just sort of your own wacky, crazy idea, but you're really tailoring it to your target customers. So you know, that's exactly what they want. But my experience mainly has been in, you know, like B2B software <laughs> and, you know, prototyping you know, digital stuff and, and content, not so much physical products, which is like a whole another level of difficulty. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's unbelievable the amount of <clears throat> revisions and feedback. And then you've got, you know, nine times out of 10, you've got a language barrier and international travel or international like paying for freight and shipment to, to send products back and forth because, you know, you're really only gonna be able to prototype something new overseas in Asia. And I mean, that, that process is 
just painful. And it, I mean, it's truly amazing that we've made it this far to where I am now. And I've got a million things I would do differently off the bat now that I know. So what, what would be some of those things you do differently? Yeah, this is something I thought about a lot lately, you know, going through supplier woes, the, the most stressful part of this process for me, besides kind of learning there's a there's a level of exposure that i was not used to right we have thousands of followers online and all of those things that it's not like celebrity but i can't imagine i mean the pressure it puts on you emotionally has, is really hard that that is kind of one aspect of it emotionally and the other part is the supplier relationships that's that's probably besides that kind of pressure of the customer uh, the supplier relationships are absolutely the hardest thing and and the reason is first of all if you're dealing with asia there's a whole cultural thing to overcome. I, I was somewhat familiar with, with some customs and some th language parts. I had studied Japanese, which is most stuff is made in China, you know, but there's a, there's similar characters in the language and there, there's just enough, they're, they're very different cultures, like, you know, night and day, but I had been, I had been around enough a Japanese and, and Chinese stuff by studying that language specifically that like I kind of went in with like, okay, I kind of understand how to at least write in English so a Chinese person functionally can understand the, the, uh, the, the, the sentence structure basically, which was kind of my general starting point was how can I communicate effectively knowing that there's, there's a different grammar structure. And that was the first part. And then the next part is like communicating how to make changes and how to continually iterate. And then you get into the whole like the trickiness of like, intellectual property and working with suppliers who are American, right? And people who speak English. And now you're getting into like contracts and money. And you know, what I what I wish I would have done differently is I wish instead of just going straight to Alibaba and made in China and these kind of places and sourcing Chinese manufacturers on my own, it honestly would have been worth more money and I would have saved more money and headache if I would have first, the first step would be to network with other entrepreneurs, really share your idea and not ask for direct, you can't steal someone else's supplier, but, but ask for a reference to a sourcing person, someone who does it professionally and someone who speaks English or someone who is an American or British or Canadian or whatever, or even speaks, you know, Spanish or something, you know, like someone who is a, is a, is someone who is closer to the English language and can operate overseas, whether it's in, you know, Mexico, Brazil, or China, Vietnam. And I would either that or I would just straight up use online things and search for um, native English speakers who who are willing who are sourcing professionals overseas. I I'm sure if you search, you know, like, factory representative American, I mean, if you type in enough on Google, you're going to find somebody and honestly spending that, I mean, that number is going to be like a thousand dollars up front or $500 up front. And that seems really daunting at first, but I've spent, you know, thousands and thousands of my own dollars, you know, completely bootstrapped to figure out this process. And I've now lost, you know, I'm probably going to be losing almost six figures because of bad supplier relationships. And wow. because I didn't go the right route at the beginning, you know, mm -hmm. and now because of the amount of success we've had, I've had access to like really crazy good suppliers. And, and, and I'm, I'm really lucky because we have had that success, but I would have absolutely started out with working with someone without a language barrier, someone with their boots on the ground who understands how to actually work with what I'm working with and is being paid to be a representative of me to the factories. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's 
supplier relationships are super, super tough. I can, I can only imagine based on all the stories that I've heard. It's, I mean, it's such a consistent theme and, and challenge. But regardless, it seems like things you know, sort of figured themselves out or you figured them out more aptly. And you were able to get to the point where then you could actually go and launch the Kickstarter. Now, so here's the thing. So from other people I've talked to in the past, previous episodes, just like what I've heard is that a lot of the Kickstarter campaign success comes from sort of like you bringing your audience and like building that initial kind of traction. When I look at the numbers, like I think I saw your tweet, this was from, you know, 12 hours within launch, $2.2 million raised, email list, 78,000, uh, text message list, 8,500, Facebook group, 13,000, Instagram, 10,000, on $3,500 in Facebook ad spend. So I'm wondering like, where did those numbers come from? How did you <laughs> manage to have such a successful Kickstarter campaign launch? You know, yeah. Like so quickly. Yeah. So it's really simple. It's just like you said it, but you have to bring your own audience. So what I discovered in doing that kind of customer research was that first of all, the customers I was going after, so millennial mothers, you know, usually the, some of them are definitely career women, but a lot of them are, are not necessarily always career women. So th there's, there's, they're just not tech. They're not into tech world. They're not into those types of things. Kickstarter is kind of more nerd adjacent. I found it's, it's board game culture. And with some tech Indiegogo definitely skews a little more tech heavy. They weren't super familiar with Kickstarter. And if they were, they thought it was a scam. So I had a ton of customer education to overcome, but I knew that I had to bring customers to the platform because I wasn't going to get a ton of organic on Kickstarter itself. So basically what I did was I created a really good offer. Not only was my product kind of aligned with what their interests were by doing that research, you know, I built this magnetic pillow for it. It's a modular piece of furniture. Kids are going to love it because it saves your couch cushions and all these things and it snaps together. It's kind of like magic. But I also said, hey, we're going to give away some free ones. And I built this whole marketing funnel off of a platform called Kickoff Labs, um, which is a really cool like viral lead gen SaaS company. Basically what it does is I built a landing page and I drove some very simple Facebook ads to that landing page. That landing page had our value props like, hey, magnets make your builds stand up. It saves your couch cushions from being destroyed. And I also said hey, enter your email to not only find out when we launch so you can be one of the first ones to get our product because there's a scarcity mindset right now or was at the time around these types right. of products, but also we're going to give away free ones. And so what I did was use this Kickoff Lab software to uh, what it does is it gives you a unique code and every, every potential customer who signs up with their email, which goes right into my Klaviyo account, gets a Kickoff Lab special ID code. And that code, if you share it with your friends, you get points. And it's totally gamified the system. And so what I did was I like, I totally gamified like potentially winning a free fort, you know, a few hundred dollars in, in, in value. And pe what people did was what I wanted them to do, which was I had embedded myself in these Facebook groups, which were kind of adjacent to my product. And there were tens of thousands of people in these Facebook groups. Mm -hmm. And I knew I was like, if I could just get like one person to share in this Facebook group, I'm going to get like a thousand email leads. And so what I did was I set up my Facebook ad to target like people adjacent with that, that group, right? Like mo I targeted mom Montessori moms, which were adjacent to the Montessori groups, which were adjacent to the nugget like groups, which were adjacent to the wooden toy groups. And I had it running to my landing page. Enough people, just enough people converted. They, they gave their email, they got their private link and they're like, why not? I'll share it in the group because if I shared it in the group, nothing would happen. Yeah. But 
since they shared it, I had that moment where like it was eight o'clock at night and my phone was dinging and I had to turn my phone off because we're going ding, ding, ding. I was getting, and I got that night, I got like 1200 email leads for basically free because I use this viral sharing loop. And those were really high quality leads. That does not always happen. Like huge caveat. Like usually uh, like a giveaway, you're not going to get that good of leads. But like it just so happened that these people were primed and ready for a product new like this. And so I really pushed that Kickoff Labs viral sharing like email lead gen thing. And I kept driving people further and further down the fort funnel by using education. So, you know, the first email they got after they got in, in, into our, you know, after they gave us their email was not only please share, but join our Facebook group. You know, we're going to share more info with you. And so those first thousand people were like my best customers. They were really engaged. They'll be the first per- people to get their product. And they were also the ones where I learned all of the things that I needed to, to continue selling the product. Are the magnets safe? Uh, what are the magnets strength like? Can you teach us about the fabric? How stiff is the foam? How do kids usually build and play with this? Like I got the opportunity to learn from my customers, to write all my copy, to be able to like totally sell the product. Wow. And so was that basically like the, well, the, the Kickstarter to, you know, being able to eventually get the, you know, to turn 1200 email subscribers to 78,000 or were there other mechanisms or kind of amplifiers that that got you to that point? Yeah, it was a total flywheel. So those first 12, 1200, you know, were, were like my, my, you know, Kevin Kelly, you know, that, that the classic, like every marketer knows this story or every content creator, the thousand true fans Mm -hmm. essay he wrote, those literally were my first thousand true fans. And like I said, I just kept pushing them further and further down the fort funnel. You know, the first thing was about getting the Facebook group and then it was following the Instagram and then it was moving to the SMS list. And I just kept encouraging sharing and just kept encouraging the fact that we're going to give these away. And then some influencers came in and, you know, by the time it was November, we were staring down the barrel of like 50,000 people on our email list and 10,000 people on our Facebook group. And then by the time we launched, you know, our goal was we want, I think, I think our goal was we wanted 75,000 email leads before we launched. We wanted, I wanted 10,000 SMS, which we didn't quite hit. And I wanted... 10,000 people in the Facebook group, which we did hit, and some other number, maybe like Instagram followers, like 10 or 15,000, which we also hit. And it was just about continuing pushing that kind of sharing and really, really continuing to do customer education. So basically all of our, all of our communication was not only, the first part was like, hey, here's another tidbit of info about the product because people were really excited about the product. But then after that, like a call to action, like, hey, get on our SMS list. So we text you when it, when, if you don't check your email or, hey, like follow our Instagram so you can see more exclusive pictures. So that's basically how it worked. Yeah. And you mentioned that the sort of like the reward system, like the viral, you know, your like earn points for taking certain actions. Do you remember like what that system was like basically how many points they earned for any given action, like what those actions were? Yeah, that's actually the first time I've been asked that. But yeah, I mean, Kickoff Labs has a really robust uh, scoring system. And and we'd actually, we ended up testing it again for a Shopify pre-order launch, which we generated uh, six figures 
now that it's not a crowdfunding, I don't like to share numbers as much because, <laughs> you know, but um, we generate six figures basically just off our SMS list because we did another Kickoff Labs launch. But yeah, so the way we scored it for the Kickstarter was you get, I believe it was, it's like three points per new email lead that you, okay. that you get to sign up. And so, you know, it just kind of was a and then there was another there was another point something i think we added we would add like additional things like hey get an extra point if you do this type of thing if we did another giveaway or there would all there you could always incentivize or give extra points you know you get one point for signing up three points for signing for getting sharing it with new people and there were one or two other things but that was kind of the basic gist of it okay right so it's basically just they earn points and the more points that they have then are they sort of like the more entries they have to win one of the products in a giveaway in the future? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then we tested later. Yeah. Sorry. We tested later on and we found actually it was better because you know that we were going literally off top five. So, you know, the top five shares had, you know, over 10,000 emails that they had gathered oh for us, which is crazy. And, and some of them were fake. I won't lie. Like we definitely had to kick people out, but we ended up doing a more fair system, which was more of a drawing. So the second time we tested this for a Shopify pre-order, it was like you enter and then every time you share it, you get, you get one point for your email you get two points for other people's email that you gather, and then you get three points for a, like a SMS number that you gather that has consent, right? And so prioritizing SMS is like a higher value thing. And so basically it would enter you in a drawing and the drawing is weighted. So it was weighted towards people with more points. So if you had 50 points versus 10 points, you're gonna be entered 50 times into the drawing. So when you put your hand in the jar, and Kickoff Labs does this all automatically. We literally press a button and it chooses winners, you know, but it chooses them weighted. So like the person who literally like had the most or second most was like drawn to win. So it was totally fair in that way. It was really cool. Right, they, they earned it for sure. You, you had mentioned also earlier that, you know, within those Facebook groups and sort of those, those early, thousand true fans you had like these you know group of pre-orders and people who are really interested in the product and use a lot of that feedback to tailor the copy and the messaging that you would use to to sell the product ultimately do you have an example of you know how you basically crafted like a message in the copywriting based on what customers or future customers told you yeah, I do. Definitely. It actually was literally what ended up being our complete, our complete, like, like Kickstarter page. So we would do, we would do full, basically what we would do is like kind of hear what everyone's saying on Kickstarter. And I'm going to see if I can pull up like a, a really quick one to get an example. So the first one is obviously like the magnets, like people were super skeptical, like do magnets work? And so we would use the Kickstarter, like what people would say, we would let people test the product and then we would use them, use what people said to like use it. Let me see if I can pull it up really quick. Basically, it sounds like using user generated content to help <laughs> customers answer other customers' objections or concerns. Yes, exactly. And we had, we had, we definitely had like a, a huge, a huge amount of skepticism. So the first thing was around the magnets, like, do the magnets actually work? Like, what do they actually do? You know, cause there's this perception that magnets are like a magic, which is just not true. Like there, there's a limit to their strength. It's, it's what's well, literally science. And so we had to kind of like show like, 
yes, they work, but no, they're not perfect. And so, you know, people wanted to know, like, how does it work? What does it look like? And so what we did was we talked about like, hey, they're strong, but not too strong. Like I'm literally reading off our page and, you know, they can be easily manipulated, but they're not going to pinch your fingers. Also, right underneath that, we had like a gif of like a kid being able to put together, showing that the pillow comes together and then pull apart. And it was things like that that really made the difference. And most of this, like, people wanted to see themselves. Like, what they would do is be like, can my dog crawl on this? Like, what if my dog's in the house and my kid's in the house and my dog steps on it? So what I would do is film my dog sitting on top of a piece or, like, clawing (laughs) at a piece. Like, that was the first thing I did. And so there's literally videos, like, down and dirty iPhone videos of, like, my dog on it. And people were like, what about stains and things like that? So I would go into my office and squirt it with ketchup and wipe it off and show people. And so it was just a constant, like, take the feedback that they were asking for and then show them what they were looking for. So, you know, how strong is it? You know, how does it stand up? Okay, well, I'm going to shoot a video of a kid kicking it and showing you that, like, it holds up, but then to a certain point, it's going to fall down when you, like, tackle it. So it was it was always kind of that kind of thing that was happening. Yeah. The, the, the reason I'm, I'm so intense about asking about these details is because I'm a, a big like believer and sort of proponent in like really putting your best foot forward when you're doing any sort of like launch event and you're trying uh. to build that momentum, especially like in the early days, because it's, it's way too easy to just like completely swing and miss on a launch. If one, especially if you, if you, if you haven't done a lot of the sort of customer research and gotten the feedback, but two, especially if you, if you haven't really incorporated that into the marketing to the copy into the messaging into the way that you're selling and communicating the product because if it just doesn't click or if like there are too many objections that you know people can't overcome in their head based on the information that you provide like that was your one shot and it was sort of gone and i kind of describe it as like you know you by doing all these kind of due diligence of getting the feedback incorporating the feedback testing iterating and like really going, you know, through the ringer with that, then you increase the ceiling, you increase the potential for your launch event. And I think that's really just a testament to, to the numbers, right? In the beginning, I asked you, you know, where do these numbers come from? I think that's really a testament to where the numbers came from is you, you built yourself a lot of potential and then you really executed on that potential and realized it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm just now remembering like, you're exactly right. Like we just constantly did listening, you know, like it was so easy to just take a screenshot of comments on our Facebook ad that said, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I'm looking for. I live in Arizona and it's so hot during the summer and I need a way to get my kids energy out in the summer. And like, okay, great. I'm literally typing that as part of our copy, like burn off energy in the indoors. And somebody else is like, oh, I live in Minnesota. It's freezing during the winter. This is going to be perfect. And so I'm like, okay, well, we need, this is the best way to burn off energy during the hot and cold months, like Mm. done. Like that's a value prop that, that, that came straight from customers' mouths. And so, yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. I, I wish I could say, I think it's like the main reason why we were so successful. I think, I think we tapped into a level of virality that, 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 you know, lightning struck. And um, I think it was the perfect timing. I, I would say it definitely, it may not, it may, it may just never happen again like that. But yeah, I mean, we certainly proved, uh, we certainly proved the product for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you guys really made the most uh, of the opportunity. So I'm curious if you can walk me through just like the Kickstarter page and campaign and basically just like how you're showing communicating the product. 
I mean, you have this, you have this really professionally done video. The you can see like the the story part of the Kickstarter where you're explaining sort of the product and you know going through all like the features and sort of how it works is like very very extensive. And so I'm wondering like how you structured that and decided what to you know talk about in what order. And I'm just curious if you can talk about a little bit you know just putting yeah. together the Kickstarter page. What was that yeah. like? So, so I mentioned I had a background in design and then video and photos. So that made it really easy. Oh, right. And then, so, so actually everything on the Kickstarter page, I did myself, which, which we got a lot of compliments when we launched. We we're like, are you sure this is not a Chinese company? Cause like, this is really pretty well done. And, and in retrospect, I'm kind of embarrassed of some of it. Cause I'm like, oh, that's not great. But it was the best I knew at the time or could do. So I shot the whole video myself and edited it. And I shot all the photos and did all the graphic design myself. And uh, shout out to Patrick Kadu from Supply and Colin McIntosh of Sheets and Giggles. So Patrick runs Supply, which is a really cool razor company. I actually own one and use it. And then Sheets and Giggles, which again, own and use. It's a sustainable betting company. So I, I basically stole both of their uh, pages. Colin from Sheets and Giggles ran a really great Indiegogo campaign, raising like a couple hundred thousand dollars for literally like organic sheets. He's kind of a baller. They're eucalyptus and he's just a really smart guy. And I took kind of some of his humor and some of the quirkiness in his video, like his video opens and he's sitting in a bed with two other dudes asleep. And he's like making like kind of quirky jokes, talking to the camera. And I was like, that's perfect. I'm going to do that. I'm going to infuse some personality into my video. And, and then Patrick from supply had run multiple campaigns and he's just kind of a e-commerce baller anyways and um, I just kind of ripped off his his layout like he had such a good way of structuring the whole page so apologies to the notes too for stealing so much from them but but yeah really what I did was I I knew the video I knew what I wanted to say in the video which is I'm selling to parents and so the first thing I'm going to do is show how peaceful and wonderful my life is now that I have a fort. Mm -hmm. And so it opens with me sitting on a couch, drinking a cup of coffee, talking, and you don't even see my product. It's just me talking about how great my product is because my kids are busy playing with it and I don't have to do anything, which is like the ultimate parent's dream of young kids is like, I can sit and enjoy watching my children while not having to stop fights and like have to field <laughs> everything. So, so, you know, I kind of am, am playing to that, then went straight to like, uh, customer testimonials because I knew those would be really important to get over that those objections and get over that hump. And so the rest of the page is basically like, hey, here's my story. Here's customer testimonials. And here is here's the price. And then here is exactly why you should buy it. It's safe. It's blah, blah, blah. And so the whole page was just kind of built around, like you said, kind of finding those objections one by one, being okay with kind of going long and going detailed into things like Let's talk about the fabric. Let's talk about the foam. Let's talk about, you know, the differences between our product and other products. And yeah, I mean, we we just kind of constantly kept hitting people with like the 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 movement down the line of everything. I mean, that's really that's really all there is to it is it, it was a very simple page with we just kind of kept hitting those features. Yeah, I, I don't it's sort of the the curse of knowledge, I think, because, you know, you're in it, you're the creator, but like you know, there's nothing really simple about it. It is is massively <laughs> crafted. And so I think you're you're underselling it a little bit. I'm gonna have a link to the show notes so people can, can, can go see. But one of the things that I think that stands out to me a little bit, and this is you know, this isn't really like a question, more just like a comment, just uh, an observation, is that you have this really unique balance of like homey DIY but also like professional grade. And I think that's exactly what 
I mean, you just talk about kind of like this perfect storm. Like that's really what speaks to like parents and, and adults is like, you know, this feels playful and this feels like relatable, but it also doesn't feel janky and DIY and like it's going to fall apart or this thing is going to happen. Like you, it's very, you know, intentionally designed and it's, and it's high quality. And, uh, and I just wanted to point out, it's, it's not even just like the, you know, the copywriting and like what you're actually saying, but really the way that you're expressing that through the graphic design, I think was also really well done. Yeah, I appreciate that. I actually feel like you're, you definitely caught on to that. That was actually something we were kind of going for. And, and I also don't know if I know how to do it another way. Mm. I mean, there is truth in the fact that like, I'm literally a dad to two toddlers, you know, I have like a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And I also am kind of like a very mediocre graphic designer. Luckily, I had a pro designer <laughs> logo, but the rest of it is me. And it's like, I'm going to use emojis and I'm kind of going to be a little quirky. And it ended up, yeah, working really well. So much so that I got ripped off four months after we launched on Kickstarter with the guy basically making like the same video I made. Oh, Ironically, gosh. he was a much better videographer than I am. So I don't want to give him free press. So don't look him up. But no his video was for him. Yeah, yeah. No link for that. But he, he raised a million dollars. So he further validated my stolen his the idea that he stole from me. But yeah, it was it, I think you're right. I think there's a there was a definitely a genuineness that we were really going for that kind of was intentional and not intentional. Yeah, that's cool. I'm curious if you can talk me through the the reward tiers and sort of even even down to like the pricing as well and how you thought through that advice that you got, different options that you that you thought through and even, you know, I don't know if you do anything differently today, but just what you learned about the pricing tiers. Yeah, I won't I'm not sure what the tag on this is, so I won't say any bad words, but this is this is where I effed up the most. Yeah. So and I would say this is where most Kickstarters are totally is a cost of goods. I, like now that I'm a true business owner, I'm running an e-commerce company. Like, I mean, I'm kind of like a marketer, like content creator at heart. And but now I have to be a CEO and I have to think about finance and cash flow and supply chain and ordering. And I didn't know that then. I, I made the biggest mistake uh, of the whole thing in pricing. And part of that is a really interesting journey that I think a lot of marketers may fall prey to, which is an interesting word that I think about a lot, which is codependency. So you build an audience and you learn about this audience. You learn literally people's name in this audience and you get to know how they feel and think and what they think about their, your product, whether they have it delivered or not. And you start to get emotionally attached to that. And I got really emotionally attached to what, I, what my offer was. Early on, I had an agency. And it's not really this agency's fault. It was they didn't know the advice they were giving me. But I had paid them to I had paid them a few grand to kind of consult and teach me how to build a Kickstarter because I had no idea what I was doing. And I, it ended up being an OK investment. But they told me to run 50% off of my retail. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're like, oh, you'll make it up on the next day. And so what ended up happening was I built such a big email list and had so much hype around this low price point. You know, it was originally $199, which is hilarious because that's like lower than the cost it takes to make it. But so we ended up moving up to $219, which is like still way too low. And I was kind of codependent on the customer because the customer, of course, wanted the best price possible. Yeah. And so... I thought, oh, I'll make it up on the next day, right? When the price raises to 259, which was a reasonable price. And that was the price I should have run it for at a deal because ultimately our retail price is 499. Um, 
And so that would have been, you know, 45% off or something. And so I was kind of stuck to the customer's emotions and that ultimately really hurt the company. And that has put me in a lot of challenging situations where I've had to not make compromises, but I've had to like be creative. And it's been the biggest stress on my life and family, you know, personally. And so if I could do anything again, it would be not only like source from a, a someone who speaks English, like have them actually manage it, pay out of pocket that first like one to $5,000. It's like that first time you write a check to your lawyer to like file your <laughs> trademark, like you're just like, oh, this is so much money, that $3,000. But that $3,000 is gonna go so much further for you. And yeah. the same thing with a supplier, a so like a sourcing professional. And then I also, I would have like gotten my costs of goods really figured out even better than I had now because there would be no language barrier and I would have charged appropriately. I can't stress enough how much charging, especially with a Kickstarter campaign where people are going for a deal. I was tied to my customers' emotions and I really wanted to give them the best deal. And ultimately they got a better deal than they should have. They got such a good deal that it put me and the company in jeopardy and caused us a lot of stress, unnecessary stress when another $30 tacked onto the price point would have solved all of our problems. Mm, and so yeah. that was, I mean, that was our biggest challenge. And so pricing is like, I think that's probably where most Kickstarters go awry is, is early on pricing because you aren't sure what it takes to actually deliver the product because you have a sample and you're like, oh, I kind of know what it takes. But it's just really hard to figure that out when you get down to all of these line items that you're really looking at. So, well, I mean, I have to imagine it's also incredibly difficult to figure out a retail price when you're not selling retail yet. And it's <laughs> sort of, you know, like, how are you supposed to know you're really just yeah. projecting? And if any mm -hmm. one of those numbers changes, then that has a cascading effect down, down the line to something like a Kickstarter campaign where it's, yeah. you know, 50% yeah, off of what? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and not only 50, sorry, I'm cutting you off, but 50% off of what is a great question. And I don't know anything about professional pricing. I'm not a CFO of like a large company, but not only 50% of that, but like the cost of one container from overseas, whether your whole mm. product is made over there or part of it, you know, we're looking at $18,000 for a single container product. And if you don't know international shipping, you may be like, okay, well, whatever. But like for reference, that's like, for our product, that's like almost $50 a unit. Mm. And just to bring it, you know, just to bring parts of it over from overseas. And, and that's the highest it's been maybe forever. That's something that I just didn't know about, right? We have international politics at play and you have all these people feeding you different information. And yeah, I mean, it's completely impossible to know. And, and, and that's why I, I encourage people to get help not only seek out an entrepreneurship network, but a sourcing professional. And for me, I ultimately, you know, got like a silent business partner that came in to help me operationalize the company. You know, I'm a creative and I created this Kickstarter and told this great story, but you know, I'm not in Excel every day. And so, you know, that's really what I needed to, to ultimately hopefully grow the company. Yeah. Yeah. I think probably that one of the biggest challenges as well is that, I mean, the, the pricing, is is the marketing and and the product right and like it's just so hard early on to figure out what's going to be i don't know something that sells like you you want to you want to err on the side of well this is like a really good selling price but also like you know are we making money and i think like the cool part about kickstarter is like it gets you started right like it, you it funds the the product creation 
but also like you have to figure out, you know, are, are we going to be unprofitable still? And then like, where does that money come from? Are yeah. we going to be break even? And like, if so, like, geez, you, you, it's, you know, bullseye, like good luck, you know, trying to yeah. exactly get that. Are we profitable? How profitable? Like, did we sacrifice more customers? And like, could we have had a better campaign if we had a slightly lower price? And so, I mean, I wouldn't beat yourself up too much about it, but man, that, I mean, I can't even imagine that's really, really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. The pricing strategy, it, it also, you're so right. It's a marketing decision and it's something that takes a lot of psychology and a lot of thinking through that, that I had to, that I had to think about. I had to think about like, will someone buy it at this price point? You know, someone was definitely going to buy it, you know, at where it's under cost, you know, like I would do that. It's great. You know, I'd flip it and sell it on Facebook, but you know, is someone going to buy it at retail? What does that look like? How do the cogs work out for that? And not only that, but what's your cost of acquisition, right? So I had like literal free cost of acquisition for that first day, right? I made $2 million in 10 hours, but on a product I lost money on, you know, my goal was to make up money by having the higher price points. And I ultimately didn't have enough to cover that because my, my growth was so high in the beginning. So I kind of had like a, it's like the, it was like a, it wasn't a kiss of death, but it was like a, it was like a sweet thing combined with a bad thing. Like now I had millions of dollars, but I had millions of dollars with like a challenge in front of me. But the good thing about having millions of dollars is you now have access to things you didn't have access to. So, you know, it did give me access to be able to like figure out a way to cover that. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a crazy challenge. Yeah. So besides the product and actually, you know, delivering, manufacturing, shipping, what's next on sort of the marketing front? And, you know, you mentioned a little bit more about uh, operationalizing the business, like taking it beyond Kickstarter. Yeah. I mean, I I definitely spent a lot of time thinking about like, what does it look like to have a brand that moves beyond crowdfunding? Because you see so many, so many companies like that have uh, any semblance of of crowdfunding success that just don't, aren't able to pivot to Shopify or an e-commerce platform or Amazon or, you know, Chinese knockoffs begin proliferating, which like we've already had a knockoff. So, you know, we're learning to deal with that. So you know, for us, you know, I mentioned I brought on a business partner. He's got substantial time in the saddle as an e-commerce operator. And our our path forward is basically, you know, this, this new, the new wave of omni-channel brands. We've got a really large bulky product. It's really hard to ship and it's really expensive to make. You know, most products like ours have a lot less pieces and magnets add, you know, magnets are 25% of the price. So, so we have an inherent challenge built into the product that we have to figure out a way around. So when we look at, when we look at selling on Shopify, you know, that challenge is cost of acquisition, right? How much does it take to acquire a customer? Cause if it's $200, we're now uh, a company that's constantly generating in the red, but if it's $50, we're making a lot of money. And then how, what does that look like on Amazon? You know, how do we own Amazon and have a limited offering without, and also fight off knockoffs and with any IP problems. And then what does it look like to move into retail? You know, how does this look on a target floor? What is the price point at for that? And um, what does the box look like? And how do we just kind of attack at all angles? And so that's literally what we're working on now is like not only delivering this Kickstarter, which is a monumental task, but, but moving the brand forward 
thinking about where are these customers going to come from, what is the story we're telling, and how are we going to get this product onto all the platforms and channels at the same time. And that's what bringing on a business partner for me enabled me to do is my goal is to continue telling better stories, you know, expand our social media and YouTube and things like that, just focus on what I'm good at and have his team, you know, focus on paid. I'll continue to do email and SMS, things that kind of relate to, to what I'm good at. And, you know, he's got a really good channel right into how do we get on target shelves? How do we get into Walmart? How do we approach Amazon and a kind of the, the trickiness of that? And so, I mean, that's, that's basically kind of the plan forward. Hmm. I had read a tweet thread. I think it was like a week, a week after you guys launched on Kickstarter. Yeah. It's like these kind of lessons learned. And you had mentioned mm-hmm. a few things around, you know, like immediately jumping straight back into uh, running ads, you know, it was during the campaign, right? But I think you were doing things too, like, you know, you're going through PR, you're going through influencers and kind of like seeding the product into people's hands, that mm-hmm. some, you know, free exposure. Was that something you did, you know, just to kind of like really maximize the campaign? Or is that something you're going to be doing on an ongoing basis from here on out? Yeah, you know, we're, it's such a good question, because we, you just like have to think about so many things at the same time, right? <laughs> you know, because you're a marketing professional. I'm not sure if you're a paid acquisition guy or what kind of your expertise is specifically a little bit. Yeah. So, um, you know, we all are, are completely aware of what Apple did to the paid marketing landscape. And, you know, I'm fortunate that I have a bigger team behind me now that's really good at paid and they're going to do that just like an agency would and do it really well, but that doesn't change our, our, our CAC. And so, you know, we've kind of just shotgunned it, right? Because we had such viral growth and our list was so big, we could throw a unit to an influencer with, with little recourse, right? That the only challenge is it costs us like $500 to ship an uncompressed fort back and forth. It's like, 150 each way it's 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 ridiculous it's because it's because it's huge but you know we could be like uh, an influencer with 50,000 followers be like hey can i try it out we'd be like sure so we're gonna get really strategic about that where there's gonna be a lot of excel sheets a lot of spreadsheets and i think we're gonna look at building out some different things you know i've definitely been following closely uh, a few other brands that that have expanded their influencer marketing. We're just trying to figure out the best way to do that financially responsibly because the product is Mm -hmm. such a high price point and because the cost of goods are so high. How do we do that? Can we use one unit for multiple influencers? How do we lower our shipping costs? Things like that. Another interesting thing that we're going to explore is affiliate. I think there's some sort of potential there. That's something that I have no idea even how to start, but you know, because we saw our word of mouth so strong, right? Using this kickoff lab sharing, you have to imagine that there's potential in affiliate that someone, you know, a, a mom to another mom is going to sell our product better than we probably can. I, I, I certainly think there's potential for that. And I mean, it's another reason why we're going to try and go to retail. You know, we have these big lists and hopefully kind of doing target and things like that and getting them on shelves will kind of ingrain them into that culture so we can just kind of be one of those brands and build like truly, truly build a hundred million dollar company. You know, you know, it's so hard. It's something I think about constantly. I'm just like, gosh, I got to make YouTube videos. Like I got to get SEO down. Like I just want to own this space and there's just no right answer. Like I just cannot come up with what the best way to do this is because you just can't scale a company like this off the back of Facebook ads. It just financially is not going to happen. Like 
we would have to take so much money from investors to be able to build that company. And we may be able to build it, but it's going to be a really unhealthy company. And I'd much rather build a half the size company than have to scale on the back of VC money um, for a product that just the cost don't, doesn't make sense. And ultimately, I, I think what our long-term plan is, besides all those things, is we're going to change the product. The product is going to have to evolve because the cost of goods are so high and because the and because the cost of acquisition is really challenging we're going to have to explore all those different platforms at the same time and completely re-engineer the product which is honestly what we're also working on well yeah i by the way i really admire the the company building approach and the scaling approach i think that's the 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 ideal and optimal way but also yeah i mean like products change and evolve like every single one that has ever existed has right and so it's not a surprise right that you're going back to the drawing board you you want to you know you want to optimize right you want to to make things to make things better more economically streamlined and one of the things you know, i think that was interesting was you know for me having more of like a, a b2b SaaS kind of background traditionally is that normally you know, and I've talked to a whole bunch of companies and normally you look at companies with, with big price points or products with big hmm. price points and you think, okay, well, that means that we have more money to spend to acquire customers. So that can open up channels like, you know, paid acquisition or like influencers that might be a little bit more, you know, or be like kind of these big sponsorships that might not be available for, you know, a product that you're only making a couple bucks off of, right? Or that, you know, the price point is $10 or, or $12 or $20 or even $100 sometimes. But I think that the shipping cost, right? And, and just the, the cost of goods kind of throws a wrench in that a little bit. You almost have to think and act a little bit more like one of these, you know, really low price CPG brands to get things that are more, you know, have more word of mouth, more virality, more scale, more in, in you know align incentives with something like a affiliates right but even you know so i, I had a uh, taylor lagasay on um oh yeah on the podcast early on yeah. he's all about influencer marketing and you know and seeding and uh, my wife you know made me think like the space is so interesting because who your target customer is is ultimately you know moms probably like you know the big one right and so mom blogs are huge right but like mm -hmm. vloggers are a ginormous thing and there's all sorts of youtubers that my wife watches who are now having kids right and that's a whole thing and they have millions of subscribers and so you know one sort of six hundred dollar shipment over there can lead to many many multiples yeah. of that and kind of like this you know continue that flywheel can but you have your wife email me those people's names a hundred percent i literally <laughs> i will get the, na the names Seriously, of those YouTubers. yeah and there's all sorts of people on youtube having kids right now and there would be this yeah. you know this whole thing with with toddlers i think um, youtube is a green field for us so yeah i not to cut you off but yeah yeah absolutely. yeah yeah but but there's definitely challenges right and it's sort of you know there's the creativity or constraints breed creativity right but like you don't have unlimited options. And so like, what are the options? Okay, then you have to really have to, how to figure out how to execute really well on those. Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. When I look at all I've learned from e-commerce, you know, I'm, I'm staring at the history of e-commerce and, you know, I, I'm, such, I'm such a podcast guy that like the businesses in e-commerce that come up again and again on podcasts are like native deodorant. Like I love Moise Ali and his story, yeah. but like I'm not going to build a $100 million deodorant brand with a $12 deodorant because he built it on Facebook ads and he yeah. got out before Facebook ads died. I mean, they haven't died, but, you know, I'm a new generation. Not only did I start this business in COVID, not only is this product like incredibly expensive to ship, but... 
I'm going to have to be on the new wave that finds the new thing. No, it's not just going to be TikTok. Like, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be, there will never, there may never be just a Facebook again, you know, like there may never be Facebook ads that, 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 you know, native and that bracelet company and blenders eyewear and like all those companies, like just straight up built off of Facebook ads. Like, we're going to find a new way, you know, it's, I think it's a good reason to watch the cannabis industry. And, and I'm not, uh, I'm not a user of that. I'm, I'm totally a fan of it, but I just think it's a really interesting thing to think about. Like, what does it look like if you can't even use it? You know, mm. a great example is my wife just got some house of wise, which is a really cool yeah. uh, CBD company that I, I found on Twitter and showed her. And she's like, Oh, that's awesome. I want to try it. And so like, you know, just kind of like reading their founder, Amanda's like Twitter feed. I'm like, oh my gosh, like you literally can't buy ads. How does this work? And so um, I'm super inspired by that. And I honestly don't know what we're going to do. You know, right now it's still pretty easy to, to get email addresses and we can still kind of find customers as we need them. But like, if we're going to be a hundred million dollar toy company, you know, I want to be like a combination of Hasbro and Pottery Barn. Like, what does that look like? Mm. You know, Fort, I named it Fort because it's pretty broad. Like, yeah, we're making a magnetic pillow fort right now, but like, what else could we make? And so, you know, but, you know, we got to continue to find those customers. So, yeah, it's crazy. Right, right. And or, you know, there's, this gets into a lot more kind of strategy uh, stuff. But, you know, I think that, I can't remember who it was, but, you know, there's some companies that will have like the big ticket item. And, but then they'll have like a really low ticket item that basically like leads to the big ticket item. So maybe you can scale the Facebook ads, for example, with a low ticket item that has high margins, but then that basically kind of like parlays into the big ticket item, which is what they really wanted to sell in the first place. Not to say that that's a thing, but that's another sort of route that companies have gone down in the past. Yeah. It's a good reason to have a product that's, Mm -hmm. I think, I think that's, I think that's something that we're seeing in this new wave of e-commerce where you can't just start, like I said, a deodorant or skincare company. Like you need, you need to create your own system of things. Yeah. It's not, and it's not even just brand. It's, it's the products are integrated with each other. There's a through line, there's a narrative and story and all those things are so important. And I don't really know if we're going to see any more, you know, hundred million dollar exit e-commerce companies, or if there will be another like Casper or whatever, which I know wasn't exactly a success, but it's just going to be really interesting. You know, what are these companies going to look like? Are we all going to top out at 20, 30 million and have, I mean, that's an amazing company. Don't get me wrong, but like, what is the, where are we going to find this growth? And I'm just not sure yet. Yeah. Yeah. Here's to hear your take on, on PR. One of the other things I I noticed and kind of picked up on on your thread was when you're working on the original you know campaign launch you had this this pr email that you sent out based on a template from harry dry shout out from marketingexamples.com it's an amazing resource and it's this really fun template where you have kind of like this emoji bullet point driven style you know um, where you're, you're really talking about the product and using imagery and stuff like that one i'm curious just like how did you find that template and like put together the email, but also has that been something reasonably successful in the past? Yeah, that's how, that's great. I've actually never talked about this. I do love Harry Dry. I think he's a genius and I think I'm 10 years older than him, which makes me feel very old now. <laughs> but yeah, marketing examples was where I found that. The original email was for uh, a female sex toy, ironically, in Britain. And he did an incredible breakdown of this email about this like it it was like very gimmicky. Like it was a, 
it's i mean it's so gross on so many levels but it was like an easter egg it was a sex toy inside of like a chocolate easter egg and and but like the email was great and so he broke that down in marketing examples and he's got a great style and you know just like i stole everything from my kickstarter page i literally stole it co-opted it to my own version with emojis and like you know different textiles and everything and I, I got to be honest, it almost basically flopped. The only press I got was local. And my lesson learned was like start PR earlier. And not only that, but Kickstarter will not generate you the PR and the, um, and the organic traffic that you want. And, you know, I'm 32. So when I was in college, you know, at the end of my college years in 2011, I remember Kickstarter being like it, right? Like if you had a product on Kickstarter, if you made a million dollars on Kickstarter, you're basically a celebrity. Like Gizmodo was writing about you. You were on in the New York Times. And that was 10 years ago. You know, Kickstarter has had scandals. It's had failures. It's had all these things. They haven't exactly grown like they should. They're, they're very, they're, they're a public benefit corporation, which is really wonderful. But I, th I think they self-admittedly like want to kind of stay away from commercialism. And mm. I think they very easily could have gone commercial, but and to their credit, they haven't. But like, it means that your organic is lower. It means that it's a very niche website. It means that gaming game boards and uh, game board, like new game companies are going to pop off bigger than a kid's toy company. And so that was one of my biggest lessons learned is like PR is really hard today. Yes, you can go viral on TikTok, and I have yet to figure that out. But, you know, I really thought that like parents.com would think this was interesting. And I was wrong. You know, I thought, you know, oh, wouldn't it be great if we had a HuffPo like logo on our website? And I have yet to get that. And, and mm -hmm. to be completely honest, I don't know how to do get that. And the, you know, multi-thousand dollar a month retainer that a PR agent that I would pay just didn't seem worth it. Like, so that was, I mean, that's been a huge struggle and I think we'll get there eventually. You know, I think we'll have that Good Morning America logo someday, you know, you know, whatever the logos are as seen on TV, Shark Tank, Good Morning America. What are all the other ones? You know, Today Show, you know, CNBC, whatever. Like we're going to have those someday, but man, that's a black hole for me. I have no idea where to start. It's so surprising because I feel like if I was a journalist, you know, covering one, just like new interesting products, but two, if I was like a journalist writing for like a, you know, a parent website or, you know, there's like fatherly.com and there's, you know, all yeah. sorts of sort of like, you know, moms and women or oriented magazines and, and blogs, I would, you know, have like Google alerts for all sorts of Kickstarters and different keywords. And I feel like, you know, you check the box for all those. So like, what, what's the deal? Why, why isn't it kind of catching on? Dad and loses job, multi-million dollar Kickstarter. I thought that was like a ringer, but yeah. No. Right. I know. I mean, yeah. what, what an amazing hook, but yeah, I mean, maybe there's things you don't know. Maybe there's dynamics you don't know. Maybe it's just, you know, not landing in front of the right people. Maybe it was something that just got skimmed over. You never know, but I appreciate you sharing the, the transparency around it. Cause not everything is a home run, even though like pretty much everything beyond besides this was a home run and, and, from the outside perspective. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I, yeah. And the email is worth looking at. So if you do go to my Twitter, like it's a good email. So I it's mean, probably it's worth stealing. A hundred percent. Yeah. I saw it and I was like, Oh my gosh, this is the best like press release email I've ever seen. And uh, <laughs> so we'll have a link to it in the show notes as well. Even though well, you've, the proof you've convinced me to use yet. it again. Yeah, no, yeah. you've convinced me to use it again. So yes, the proof isn't well, in the pudding, but I'll, I'll prove it someday. 
Yeah. And well, you did get some a little bit, right? So I don't know if it was because of this email, right? But you did a local kind of NPR yeah. podcast mm-hmm. with uh, St. Louis on the air. I see Forbes, BuzzFeed. There was two kind of podcasts that you have booked, I'm assuming about this. So, you know, mm-hmm. PR in general wasn't a complete flop but the email seemed like it didn't yield anything directly. Yeah. Actually, ironically, one of the lessons learned from this that that I would encourage any entrepreneur on the PR front is I positioned myself personally almost better than I positioned my company. You know, I was familiar with e-commerce Twitter. I listened to all the e-commerce podcasts. I literally listened to any podcast with e-commerce in the title. And so I was familiar, like, who are these personalities? You know, who are the people I want to meet and know? And because of my Kickstarter campaign success, like I'm on this podcast, right? Because I started tweeting at the right people. And now Corey, like, you know, I'm on his podcast because like I got connected through the right people. And I'm, I, you know, I got on other com- podcasts like e-commerce fuel or, you know, whatever. And so, and so I actually used my like personal success, like the, I, I think it was a great move ultimately. And it was a strategic move on my part. I'm like, okay, if I do have success, if I do have numbers in the millions, I'm going to use that to get access to things I normally wouldn't get access to. Like being a member of e-commerce fuel, which is a very, very tightly knit closed community and uh, has brought me a ton of benefit or getting to know people on Twitter and kind of, you know, I haven't been able to tweet as much lately. Most of that's because of work and I don't have as much interesting to say because everything yeah, I do exactly. is really boring. <laughs> but like, <laughs> it's been an incredibly valuable tool to network. And I, I just encourage anyone, if you do feel like you have, there is a ton of like ability to personally network and that will actually grow your business network. And it, it's, been, it's been huge for me. So I, it's mm-hmm. definitely, I would highly recommend that. Yeah, I mean, where a lot of this starts, right, is like you you know a person, they make an introduction, they give you like a you know a tiny piece of advice that sends you down a rabbit hole that leads you to some other person, and like this this whole ripple effect, right, just from like knowing the right people and like I said, positioning yourself and and uh, getting your story personally out there as well. To, you know, people connect with people, right, and so it's it's the face behind the brand that ultimately urges people to you know go a little bit above and beyond what they normally would. Yeah, absolutely. Man, this has been an amazing conversation and I'm really sad to sort of start to wrap it up here, but I would also love to take a a kind of quick sneak peek into your swipe file, as it were, into some marketing examples, campaigns, ads, landing pages, whatever it is that you think are noteworthy. Any, you know, cream of the crop top examples, just your favorite you could walk me through. Well, now that we've been talking and you brought this up and I had some time to think about it and my brain has been processing The Kanye West story that Harry Dry tells on marketing Mm. examples is phenomenal. Uh, It's worth looking up. He's maybe one of the best writers I've ever read. So watch, read that. I'll bring up somebody I've I've mentioned already, which is Colin McIntosh. And I've met him and like know him a little bit now, just very little. But he he probably is embarrassed with the amount of times I've mentioned him on other (laughs) things. But he, he did a great job with his Indiegogo campaign. I was super inspired by his whole company's demeanor. I, not only do I think he's an impressive leader, but he's got a really fun, playful take in all of his marketing. They did have to pivot a little bit during COVID because it's you know kind of a, a more serious time, but they did playfulness better than anyone I've ever seen. And not so much so that it was eye rolly, but like just genuinely funny. And so definitely check out his original Indiegogo from a few years ago. Watch the video. There, it's definitely funny and take a look at his you know sheets and giggles 
Amazon.com or whatever, just Google it and you'll find they're like the top Amazon sheet seller now and, you know, are a really cool D2C company and have a really great kind of funny feel vibe. You know, what was the other one that I was really thinking about super inspired by? Those were the two that kind of came that I keep referring to. Oh, and maybe one of the best emails I've ever gotten. And I don't know if someone can hunt this down, but there's a company called Road ID. And Road ID makes this bracelet. It's uh, all it is. I actually own one because I'm a cyclist, but I wear it when I ride my bike on the road specifically because uh, if you get hit by a car, it helps you identify the body quite literally. And it has medical information. So if you're diabetic or have like a clotting disorder or something, and it's a safety company and they connect, you know, they have, they have ones that connect to your watch band and all these things. And so it's a great safety little thing. And lots of cyclists wear them just in case you get hit by a car, people can identify you and know who to call for emergency contact. But what Road ID did was they, they really dropped the ball on their email list, like for a long time. And I was a subscriber because I had bought something from them. And they ended up sending out a re-engagement email that was phenomenal. And the re-engagement email literally was plain text. And it was like, hey, we stopped emailing people. Like we have a lot of email addresses. We totally stopped. We failed at this. Number one, if you want to unsubscribe, here's the button. Like here's the link. Click it. No hard feelings. We dropped the ball here. But number two, we're going to start crushing it, basically. I don't remember what they said exactly, but you could probably find this or email the founder. I'm sure he would respond and send it to you. And then like, and and so stick around. We'd love to have you. And then number three, not only that, but like, I think the third thing was like, respond to us to this email. Like, so it, it kind of went in a tiered mm-hmm. step. And it was, I want to say like a real legit agency, like CTC did this email or something. It was really brilliant. And either that or they came up with it. But if you can dig up that road ID email, it just stuck out in my mind as like the best re-engagement email I've ever seen. And, you know, they probably had a list of over, you know, 100,000 people, probably more than that, right? They'd been selling their in all sorts of stores and bike shops across the country and world. And they sponsor the like freaking tour to France, you know? And so like just incredible engagement email. I'm not sure if it's a tactic. I don't know what it was, but it was brilliant. So see if you can dig that up sometime. I love it. Yeah, I'll do some digging and see if I can. If, if I did find it, it'll be in the show notes. If not, if someone <laughs> else wants to dig around and send it to me, it'll eventually be added to the show notes. But that's I've already searched my email and I can't find it. So oh, if somebody man. has it, I know. I'm sorry. I, I looked. I literally thought about it the other day and looked for it. So I'll email the founder and uh, see if yeah. He, see His if name's Edward. So yeah, Edward, I'm coming for you. Well, Connor, last question for you. It's been it's been great. When I say everything is marketing, the title of the show. What does that mean to you? What comes to mind? I'm going to reference the fact that you and I share a love of a book called This Is Marketing which is more of a philosophical dissertation on what marketing is and isn't. So, I mean, when I think everything is marketing, I think more of uh, community, tribes, and storytelling. So as someone who kind of thinks of themselves as a marketer, you know, I think everything you're doing, every movement you're making is a constant, and this could be interpreted really poorly in almost a manipulative way, but it's it's all positioning. We're always aligning ourselves to get into the right to the right position. I'm a mountain biker. It's something I spend a lot of time on and energy on, training and practicing for. And with mountain biking, when you're attacking a really technical downhill section, um, all you're doing, you know, you've trained yourself to the point where you're able to constantly make minute decisions in order to literally keep yourself from crashing. And that's what we're doing constantly as marketing. So when I say everything is, when you say everything is marketing, that's what I'm thinking about is 
I've been trained and I'm constantly reflecting and thinking on the positioning and the story that I'm constantly telling Mm -hmm. so much so that it almost becomes second nature. And, and definitely as a marketer or, or, uh, you know, an e-commerce or SaaS entrepreneur, like know your story, know who your community and tribe are and know who you're selling to. And I think that's what I'm thinking about. I love it. Fantastic answer. Connor, it's been a pleasure. Appreciate you being super transparent and I can't wait to see the fort in the hands of YouTubers yeah. I know and watch, TikTokers, <laughs> people on Instagram everywhere, and just watching you dominate and explode. Awesome. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to you, Connor, for coming on the show, and make sure to check out Fort as well. If you can spare a moment, click on the link in the show notes and pop on Twitter to thank him for sharing everything. Give him a follow and let him know what you learned on the episode as well. And to wrap up, here are a few of my takeaways. First of all, you have to bring your audience to Kickstarter. Kickstarter, like many other platforms, is a better amplifier than it is a driver. So Connor built a huge audience with a massive email list before Kickstarter, which then kickstarted the flywheel and led to so much success later on. Second of all, there is no silver bullet. Despite the huge success of Kickstarter, most things uh, Connor did were pretty much you know failures. They didn't really seem to work all that well. Lots of pitches didn't pan out, ads didn't pan out. Success stories like this are the result of many things working together in combination, many small things. Uh, But also, check out the fantastic Kickstarter page for some landing page inspiration. That alone, I think, was one of the key factors. And finally, I absolutely love how Connor leveraged communities to help develop and market the product before it even existed. Everything from how the product worked to the branding to the copywriting was all based on community feedback. This is a textbook example of how to do it successfully and authentically. If you've got a question or a takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.